Welcome to your Drive Time News Blast. 30 minutes, 45 for patrons. Jam-packed with news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice. This is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. Today's top story, lots of bad news. Sometimes the bad news is good news for the stock market. Sometimes the bad news is bad news for the stock market. There was bad manufacturing numbers coming out, and I immediately dug in and found that those bad manufacturing numbers started in August of 2019, just as this stuff started to be like, uh, maybe we need a a backup plan. And I believe that tomorrow we will have more record-breaking unemployment numbers. So stick for that. And people have like criticized me for saying that they can manipulate stock market prices, that really the market is is responding like in a perfect information world or whatever. But I've I, then someone tweeted at me a picture of who was it? I think it was Vetarki. A picture of the stock market one day, like the stock market movement, a chart, and it had and Donald Trump had signed it for like an economics media guy, Lou Dobbs or something. Like as he was making a speech, the stock market went up, up, up. And Donald Trump was like taking pride in that, which is, of course, he even he is not that uh, impulsive or naive. Like you never want to take control of that because you don't control the factors that go into it really. So, but I think that they do. So when he says scary stuff, like I think he did yesterday, it you can see that coming out in the stock market right away, I think. Yeah, yesterday he said during the press conference that up to 240,000 people will die in the U.S. from coronavirus. And the media was like, finally, he admits how horrible it's going to be. They say the next two weeks are going to be the worst well, let's just do it back of the envelope right now. 240 of, let's say it's pneumonia is what he's talking about. They're not separating out non-COVID-19 from no. any other kind of pneumonia. Okay, so pneumonia deaths, say, are two or three million a year. And the U.S. population is 350 out of 7 billion. So 5% of the population. So say three times 5%, one twentieth, or even one... You yeah, so that me. would be higher than average. <laughs> yeah. Higher than average. No, so say if it was three million a year, and we were one fifth of the population, that would be one hundred and fifty thousand deaths. Because ten percent of three million is three hundred thousand, so five percent. Yeah, is one hundred fifty thousand deaths. So he's saying that we will have a mortality spike. Yes. And what I'm saying is if they're saying 250 is just pneumonia and no other COVID thing. So like in Italy, a big source of how their numbers are being grossly inflated uh, is that they will write, they are counting anyone who tests positive for COVID as a COVID death. Yeah. Somebody distinguished between, I think it was a doctor over there or some public official, that the deaths in Italy are deaths of people who died with coronavirus not right. from coronavirus yeah that's coming out now now they're letting those that truth come out because like the panic doesn't have that much value anymore the panic has done its job yeah and if they continue to suppress obvious bad science then they'll start seeming discredited they can say well this was just the panic of the moment blah 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 but if what trump is saying is that you're going to actually see a spike in overall morbidity that i would be surprised at because he can get 150 because that's what you're going to get anyway 
And, and then you could fold in flu deaths that are, or whatever, that are not actually pneumonia or a lot of other things. I mean, it'd be very easy to manipulate a number that kind of small. But if you look at any of the mortality stuff coming out of basically anywhere, if it's if it's good data, it does not show a spike in mortality. I've seen that from many sources. I, my latest source yesterday I talked about Off Guardian. Lou Rockwell has a ton of it. Rappaport has it. There's something called SWPRS.org. It's like the Swiss Propaganda Research Center, and there's a doctor who's covering the real data from there, SWPRS.org. So I'm just telling you, there are sources you can go and you evaluate for yourself if that evidence looks apples to apples, if it's valid, what the resources are, what the footnotes are. Just evaluate it. Yeah, to that, Rappaport put in his newsletter yesterday some information that was published in 2019, I believe, from, oh, 2018. No, it's 2019 from Time Magazine talking about the 2017-2018 influenza, the flu. Oh, in 2017? 2017? 2017 to 2018, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there was a spike. Remember I keep talking about that January 2017 spike in morbidity in Europe? I keep talking about that. Like if you look at the week-to-week mortality rate above or below average, there's a chart for every one of the European countries. January 2017 is super spiky, but 2020 is not. Yeah, it's a lot of people have been worried. They see these tents go up around hospitals and stuff, and the stuff's being presented kind of out of context as, as though it's abnormal. Emergency rooms, ICUs near capacity, they're almost always near capacity. And <laughs> right. Time Magazine, here's what they're it, small. Here's what it said. It said, the 2017-18 influenza ep- ep- epidemic is sending people to hospitals and urgent care centers in every state, and medical centers are responding with extraordinary measures, asking staff to work overtime, setting up triage tents, restricting friends and family visits, and canceling elective surgeries. In California, which has been particularly hit hard, again, this is 2017 and 18, several hospitals have set up large surge tents outside their emergency departments to accommodate and treat flu patients. Even in L.A., the emergency departments have standing room only, and some patients have been treated in the hallways. And other hospitals are encouraging visitors to stay away, saying they'll only accept visitors from children. Children 14 and under should not come in with flu symptoms. So... This is not completely out of the ordinary that during right. a flu-like season that these measures are taken. It's just being highlighted by the media right now in an alarming way. That's not to say that everything's fine, but anybody who's worried about I think about- that they just, uh, this is how I think about it. We are in a constant state of danger. We're in a constant state of danger from cars, from bugs, from everything. We know that. This is, our laws have arisen based on human activity, human nature, human biological reality, all that stuff. And they have ways of evaluating policy. There are, that's how common law comes up. Every single case has been evaluated over time. And the policy is often evaluated, if not always evaluated, when it's just a purely kind of economic approach like cars, how much, how much economic value to monetize it, to quantify it, does driving cars impart to society? And then they compare that with, they try to quantify the cost in lives and they put anywhere from 50 to $150,000 on a quality year of life. And they allow cars, which take 30, 35,000 lives a year, that's deaths. And there's usually a casualty rate that's a multiple of the deaths. So think about that. They went through that 
policy decision and they still allow it. And I would like to see that policy decision making based on this event. So you're saying, yeah, well, we're not saying that it's not serious. I'm just saying everything is serious. Death is serious. People die of death all the time, like all the time. Are they dying of death? Are they dying of death plus? Like, what is it that's happening right now? And you can quantify it. And people are yelling at me, they don't have time to quantify it. It's like, right, but they have time to cause probably more than $12 trillion worth of damage. And then to go ahead and kick the cost of that to future generations, taxpayers who have no representation. That's what they they have time for that. I think they do have time to quantify it when they have these models that they run. It's got to be there already, right? I mean, they actually did the live simulation in October and it took them five hours. I don't know how long it took them to prep, but plug in the real numbers. They they must have all the models up because they they did it all. So why don't they plug in the real numbers? Plus the CDC is funded up to like $6 billion a year. What is it for? It's for information. CDC is not a lawmaking body, I don't think. Who knows? Maybe I don't think be. it is, but I mean, they make recommendations, but it seems to me that they're an information and analysis thing. They certainly have an intel arm. Can't they crunch a few numbers? N- pneumonia is one of the leading causes of death every year. Yeah, they, they definitely should have, have the numbers on that. Numbers on that stuff. I, I mean, I think they have numbers on all of this stuff, and I think they run tests. I think they're way that's ahead what of they us do, when it comes man. to this that's, analysis. That's what yeah. they, you read these published they reports, they, they speculate, they forecast. It's what, Yeah, it's what they do all the time. I want to relate this to the Spanish flu and something that's worth considering because all these policy things can be put into place regardless of whether a crisis is manufactured, whether it's spontaneously arises, whether it's a combination of the two or whether it's nothing's real at all. I'm going to say that there probably is some sort of new strain of virus that right now the numbers are being inflated and I think the numbers are being inflated for a variety of reasons to get policy stuff put in place. But if we look at that crisis communication material, that's the way that they present these things. Because as I've mentioned before, to train the public how to react in the future to something that's coming. And when we look at the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu had three waves. And I was wrong. The second wave was at the end of, two th- at the end of not 2000, of, uh, 1918. It was not in 1919. The third wave was 1919. But what happened with the Spanish flu is the first wave was not as deadly. The second wave was the most deadly, and the third wave was not as deadly as the second wave. The second and third wave featured a strain of the virus that was stronger because it had mutated between the first and second wave. This is according to reporting on it. I don't know. You know, I wasn't on the ground or anything doing journalism back then. I'm just going based on what I've read about it. And that mutated strain that appeared in the second wave was powerful enough to kill a healthy 25-year-old within 24 hours of contact. So it was pretty deadly compared to the strength of the first one. Now, these articles are popping up now talking about why did the second wave come and why was it so deadly? And we touched on this a little bit yesterday. The conclusion, one of the conclusions is that people did not quarantine. They did have similar similar shelter-in-place orders back then. I read some of them. It's eerily similar. We're not going to church. Everybody's staying in. Restaurants are closed. But the people who were running the wars, the generals and stuff, and the people in government, they weighed the cost of sheltering and holding their soldiers back versus the war that everybody was in. And they oh, said wait, the war say is that better. again? They because weighed the war the cost. had something to do with why this was so bad. Yeah, this is exactly where I'm going with. They, they, had, they weighed the cost of holding their soldiers in 
versus losing the war. So if you bring all your soldiers in because you're worried about a virus and that's going to hurt your war effort. So they said, go on as, as everything is. And they allowed their soldiers to go around the country. They did not do any of the quarantine type stuff that was recommended. And one of the conclusions drawn is that that was a major contributor of why the second wave appeared and why it spread so quickly and why the third wave, which was as deadly as the second wave, did not kill as many people because the war had ended and people weren't traveling abroad as much. That there, And you could probably dig deeper into that. I think uh, Nacho Slave tweeted about the actual impact. I don't know if he was identifying this, but as soon as you start thinking of it in the context of World War One, you see there's nutrition problems, there's infrastructure problems, there's probably pestilence from a lot of people being super sick. And yeah. they, they did not, I don't know what, where, uh, when antibiotics started to come into wide use. And of course, antibiotics doesn't affect a flu. However, if they, if they couldn't necessarily tell the difference among their microbes or had a shortage of antibiotics, yes. that could didn't have certainly, tests. if it's pneumonia, it can yeah. be bacteria. Those were other factors. Didn't have tests, didn't have vaccines, didn't have a way of telling if it was a virus, if it was bacteria. Those, those things were all mentioned as well. And how this relates to now is, that if we are being prepared for something coming in the future, while they still are going to exploit any crisis they can, it's worth considering that a second wave could potentially be stronger and that this is preparation for that second wave. In anticipation that a stronger version that is more deadly this coming, if you're following the model from back then. Now, of course, it could be directing people's attention to the Spanish flu to draw out this potential discussion about this theory. I, I don't know enough about virology. However, I do listen to plenty of of people who do study it. And I am not convinced that they actually could recreate that kind of fatality number unless they prevent people from helping themselves. So I'm not sure like gain of function, you know, a bioweapon. Yeah. If they wanted to release a bioweapon, I, I think there are those. But I'm just not sure they could they could control that, that second wave of death. However, the eventual one stuff and a lot of other signaling is that this is 18 months. Everybody focuses on 18 months, which means for sure a second wave. But yeah. I would I would also say like they're they're implementing so much of the stuff that you're like, oh, they're preparing us for like get like this. They're just changing society. Absolutely. They, they I mean, they, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a preparation. It's incrementalism. 9-11 did it. Yeah. This does it. Everything does it. And war quite often does it. And I actually feel grateful that they spared us the actual slaughter. But you can look by what they're doing and how they're implementing some of their agenda items right now as they suspend our rights and railroad this stuff through. This is These are their tactics. So when you get a war, don't, don't think, consider the possibility that the war is intentional and that all the different parties, China, Russia, whatever, use these same factors, same fear factors to control their own populations. So talking about war as if it is two legitimate national parties who have a dispute from the beginning to end, that this calls, uh, I think that calls, uh, is cause to question that. And I have a comment or response to that right after this. 
With no sports to watch or games to bet on, the presidential election is the only competition still running. I checked with my bookie, and they're taking action on the outcome. Right now, it looks like it's going to be Trump versus Biden. However, if you take a shot on Bernie Sanders getting the nomination, 100 bucks will win you 800 My bookie has odds on everything political. From what they're going to say in the debates to the next terrorist to be captured, MyBookie.com has it all. Join now and start winning huge today. Visit MyBookie.ag, that's MyBookie.ag, and use the promo code BINKLEY, B-I-N-K-L-E-Y, all caps, for a 50% deposit bonus. At MyBookie, you can bet on anything. So the fear tactics that are being used they do enable them to accomplish a lot of things to push those agendas through without people questioning them to people having people beg for mass surveillance to beg to have their rights suppressed what the crisis communication material talks about is it's always going to be over exaggerated fear for the purpose of making sure that if there's no real if there's no real threat here there might be a threat here but if it does not manifest in the way that we're saying it does the one, the one that's coming around the bend, the one that we're really scared of, people will be ready to react then because you don't want people learning how to react when the real danger comes. So you scare the shit out of them while something that's not quite as dangerous as you might be leading them to believe is here presently. Good. And this is their, is their out. So I always thought like with the moon landing, they should own it. They should say we were in the Cold War and we won the Cold War because we faked that thing. So you're welcome. Yeah. So that's how they do it, which is why I think they don't actually kill people because they do have that. Like if they can unload that conspiracy theory out to the world and it still validates that they are they're doing good and not just doing this to kind of bail their buddies out or implement 5G. They the I have gotten a lot of trolling pushback on when I say like the First Amendment has been suspended. People are like, oh, you're still talking, which is really annoying because I'm talking on Twitter, which is this like fake private thing right. where they're allowed to censor, which doesn't even make sense because like publics cannot censor purely political speech. These guys work hand in hand with the government behind the scenes. Some of them have been established by the government, seated by the government. It's definitely intentional. You can read the Cass uh, Sunstein's Cognitive Dissonance book or whatever it was called, Conspiracy Theories paper about how they, the digital space is easier to control that way and infiltrate. They uh, And then so some of the trolls I'm kind of wrangling with here are telling me, you know, what are they? They, they can't, don't have time to like stop down and give this data and do this analysis. <laughs> and I'm saying like, that that's the old climate change precautionary principle. Yeah. We can't wait to know the facts. We just have to take action, come what may, like without realizing like it could equally harm as good. Like this solar radiation management that's cooling down the earth, that could go way worse than heating up the earth. Like we're on the precipice of being like kind of overly cool, you know? Like you could you can't grow stuff everywhere. If it got warmer, you could grow stuff everywhere, I think. Anyway, but uh but what they did, like the precaution they're taking is like is like setting off a nuclear bomb. Like they're they're absorbing so much and they're doing all of this in the absence of the First Amendment. And people are yelling at me for wanting the right to assemble in the face of and, and even if they didn't plot it, even if Congress didn't say we need to suspend the First Amendment so we can have this bailout package. Not one guy, no matter how dumb, I mean I would suspect that even uh, 
the who's the who's the uh, Georgia congressman who thinks Guam is going to tip over? The guy who plays Cynthia McKinney. I can't. Re- <laughs> yeah, I can't remember his name. I always have his John Ossoff's buddy. Mm, oh, oh, really? John Ossoff was an intern of his. Oh my gosh, that's funny. So maybe he wrote that line for him. Anyway, but like everybody in D.C., like anybody who gets to D.C. knows instinctively that if the if the Bill of Rights is suspended, you get to do whatever you want. You know, they're going to do whatever they want. I mean, Trump might not have planned to get his $2 trillion infrastructure package in, but even he, who's like, I'm not a political guy, is just like, oh my gosh, it's a free-for-all. They're looting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. And one more thing, this is the last thing. I noticed that they're telling insurance companies that they have to pay out or suggesting that they pay out even if they have a, except for a case of virus clause, And I suspect, so the insurance companies then would have standing to sue them and at least get discovery on how they made these decisions. And I suspect that in one of these bailouts, maybe it already happened, but they will completely pay off insurance companies and get in return, they're not allowed to sue because that would give us the discovery that we need. Yeah, interesting. Virus clause is a very funny sounding word. It makes me think of like an alternative Santa Claus that you never want to run into. Virus Virus clause. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that that calls for an emoji. I have a prediction. I think this continues to go on. I think we get a brief reprieve around summer sometime for a couple of months perhaps. And I bet when flu season kicks in, we do this all over again. And then I bet next year we do it all over again. We might not see football for a long time. Oh, I don't know. I think they'll do football. They might do an abbreviated version of it. Maybe yeah. They're gonna they're gonna be working on yeah. some alternatives right now, some social distancing type. Maybe it'll be flag football. You can't touch the people. You gotta it pull will, the flag. I, I would say it will have a uh, even more obvious metaphorical role. You could be right about that. They are definitely going to use it for the propaganda purposes because people's eyes will be locked in on it because they're going to be craving it so badly. Yeah, football is a proxy for war, and yeah. the coronavirus is a proxy for war. There, maybe there'll be a team named after the virus. A maybe new team. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> the Coronas. Yeah. Do you want to talk about ventilators? Or did you have. Sure. I would love to talk about ventilators. So there's been a lot of talk in the news about shortage of ventilators and whatnot. There has not been much talk about what it's like to put a ventilator in and the mortality of people who use ventilators. I Somebody in my family was on a vent for about a year in the ICU. And wow. When you're over 65, there is like 30% of people who are on ventilators never come off of them. And the rate the death rate within like a year span of coming off of it is astronomically high. To Why? the point of where because doctors Because that's what it takes to get on it or because they're dangerous and bad they're for you. Dangerous like the way in so many ways. Get oxygen, Everything about blind. putting them in is dangerous. You have to be trained. You have wow, to check really? off all these boxes to make sure that their anatomy is correct because really? it's a lot of people who end up sick Ow. who they oh. their anatomy has changed. Yes. And yes. If it doesn't go in right, if it goes in the esophagus, if it goes <gasps> in the wrong thing, oh, then this is terrible. If, if it's not fixed, then they could die. So in emergency situations, they did some studies on this and they found that it's not always somebody who is specifically trained in doing that. And oftentimes it can be put in wrong. I, I can tell you that I know for a fact that there's even putting in trach tubes 
there is which is less hard is that what you're saying i don't know if it's less hard yeah, i think okay. they're probably both uh challenging but wow there are complications and it, it's my mom I, yeah. And she ended up in the ICU multiple times because of the trach problem, although it, they ended up getting better with her unique anatomy. However, it's a long, dangerous process, and the doctors preempt you, and they tell you this because, like you mentioned, they are worried about lawsuits and stuff like that. You are told that, and I even read this in a study I was reading, but I knew this from firsthand experience, you are told and this is if they're over 65 and have, have problems going on, which a lot of these people who are in hospitals right now are. And they tell you, this person is probably never going to come off uh, the ventilator. This might be, if we put them on a vent, this might be the last time you ever talk to them. Because wow. people who are I on ventilators cannot that. talk. They can hear, but they cannot talk because the thing is in their mouth. And the doctor, in our case, at one point would talk in front of the oh. patient, like, oh, well, oh my she might never, you know, oh. talk again or might might not survive. But the patient can hear, right? right. And Oh, that's awful. At one point, I took a study in, and th- I'm going to bring this back to what's going on right now, about the psychological factors and the impact uh, of, uh, of optimism and attitude and support and advocacy for the patient. And there are multiple studies that have been done that shows that when you have that positive psychological aspect of it, when you have support, when you have an advocate in your corner, somebody asking questions about what are you doing right now? Why are you doing it? Understanding it, helping, talking to the patient about, about the future, um, helping them, giving them a reason to fight to, to live. Because the, the process of getting off, I should say this first, the process of getting off a ventilator, you have to do these these tests are called SBT tests. And these SBT tests, are, they're breathing tests because your lungs start to depend on the ventilator. The longer you're on a ventilator, the less chance you have of ever breathing again on your own because you become, your body, you So atrophy. they are, so GM is being asked to produce an astronomical amount of ventilators. And they said they can probably get up and running to 10,000 a month. So if that's 120,000 new ventilators in a year above what is normally done, perhaps they will rush to overuse Use those. Them. And how much experience, even if you train someone, there is yes. no substitute for experience. So this in itself could contribute to one year's time, yes. a great increase in death. In death rate. That's, where, that's exactly where I'm heading to this. And oh, how sorry. This could I be, did not mean to scoop you. How could this I was be a factor? Just following along. Yeah, yeah. No, that's clearly what, you were making absolutely. the uh, inevitable conclusion. Because I've been wondering where this GM ventilator thing, I was like, it's going somewhere. Right. I, I was. That is a very dangerous thing being put on a ventilator. Not as dangerous if you're younger, but for people who are older and have these problems, it also causes pneumonia at times. It can cause pneumonia because it probably dries out those. This is what I understand happens: is that you, it's like a mucous membrane, it's moist or whatever. That's why you can get pneumonia, like when you use a lot of HVAC. So, like we, I do, of course, heating and ventilation, whatever, air conditioning. But if it's like super humid outside and there's a lot of air conditioning inside, which really dries stuff out, it can dry out those passages. But the bottom of the lung still stays moist. So if it can't circulate, then that's when uh, fluid or moisture builds up down yeah. there. And it can be a place where any random bug, it doesn't even need to have a bug to kill you, but any random bug can just start growing there. And an immunocompromised person can be much more vulnerable. That's probably why one of the reasons why pneumonia in hospitals is so much deadlier. It is very deadly in hospitals. Maybe and those people are on ventilators. Everything about ventilators, they do serve a... They do serve a function, but there's a debate among doctors sometimes about th- whether they even want to put people on it or not because 
the quality of life. It could be drastically right. reduced. Wow. People might not ever I get off it. I have no idea. Although, because you don't think of it as being installed like that. You it think goes of it as down like a scuba into your, mask. Yeah, they I think of it, it like as anesthesia where you're just They do have masks like that, but a large enough, from what I understand, these people that are being uh, incubated in the hospital are doing the full, not the, not, well, not intubated one of the, intubated or intubated. Because <laughs> okay. right. intubated is like a baby. Intubated is when they put the tube down right. your yeah, throat. That, that's what I'm talking about, intubated. But I think these GM ones are extremely complex. I don't think they're the mask ones. I think they're the ones that are- uh, I think so too. You know, high tech. Yeah. I mean, I, if you read the article in the journal yesterday, it was quite- it was quite convincing that this is a major undertaking. That m- m- most of it is handmade. It said, handmade. Yeah. So you're hand built of with, many many uh, parts. When they're being, I'm just saying off. it sounds like it's the big thing, the big the ventilator that you. What you're saying is should I think not so. be used lightly. From all indications about what I read, that's yeah. most cases that are that are the deaths anyway. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to wean off of it. If you don't wean off quickly, then you start getting comments from the doctor about talking to the family that might not ever get off of this thing or whatnot. But the process of weaning off of it is very challenging and difficult because not only has the body become dependent on it, the patient has psychologically become dependent on it and they are afraid. And when you are isolated and you are afraid, you don't have any family member to advocate for you like's going on right now. Exactly what I was thinking. you. you are personally responsible for your mother's above average responses I, to these treatments. I know that you are personally responsible because you do the work and you're there. Yeah, and my my family and my my dad never left my mom's side and That's I'll, what I was saying the other day that that you have to be there and they're not going to let you. That yes. in itself will increase mortality. Right, and that is exactly what I was coming to. Is that right there? If you find yourself in a circumstance where somebody that you care about is in that situation, do everything you can to try and be there. If they there's nothing, you. if there's nothing it's that like you church can and do, assembly. Yeah, they're not letting us. There's nothing that you can do. Set up some sort of FaceTime. Set up something so that you can be that advocate, not only to the doctor, not only to ask questions, understand why everything is being done is being done. Be a pain in their ass. That's, That's a great okay. idea. I wonder if they would let you set up a camera in there. Uh, that that is. I, I would, bet they won't. Yeah, I would stay on them. I would make them arrest me until I would do everything I can to try and get them. I'm going to continue to bother them until they let me put a camera in there, until they let me come in there. Do something to be able to speak to that person, talk to the future plans you have with them, talk talk to them, give them that hope, that reason to live, because they're already going to be afraid, and they can't communicate. They can hear, but they can't communicate. They need that connection. They need someone to give them that will to do those breathing tests, those SBT tests, which are very hard psychologically. It can be easy to give up if you don't have someone there supporting you and weaning off of that ventilator. Yeah, I think studies have shown this, that this positive advocate in that corner, putting them in the right mindset does increase outcomes. I've absolutely seen that. Educate yourself and stay actively involved. And I've got a very uh, funny kind of uplifting thing for the patron 15. And I'm also going to take you on a world tour. So all right, let's do that. And then tomorrow I'll give you some of my personal, somebody asked me to talk about what it's like to deal with the situation and having a special needs son, like quite severely special needs that, uh, that people, you know, they talk about this human suffering and everything. And it really, these kids aren't as resilient in some ways, because they don't understand what's happening. So I, I'm happy to talk about some of those challenges. Although we're not going to get uh, too 
I can't go serious on this show, man. I live with normies. I gotta, I gotta keep it light. So hey, that's to lighten fine. up after that's the fine. break. You guys can find your drive time news blast every weekday afternoon at thepropport.com or your favorite podcasting platform with the Propaganda Report podcast feed. If you want an extra, extra fifteen minutes every time we post a drive time news blast, join Patreon for five bucks a month. You can get access to that extra content and some other special activities we're going to be involved in. And we will We're talk to you guys <laughs> some special activities for special friends. We will talk to y'all tomorrow.